Hello and welcome to Revise, Rebut and Resubmit, a podcast that explores early career researchers' experiences in publishing their first academic paper and which celebrates this important milestone. My name is Jennifer Fitchett and I'm an Associate Professor of Physical Geography, an avid science communicator and a still relatively young academic with a passion for breaking down the barriers and unnecessary mysticism in the publication process. Each episode, I interview a new person on their journey in writing, revising, rebutting, resubmitting, and having their first academic paper published. This podcast is very kindly supported by the DSI-NRF Center of Excellence for Paleosciences. Bongakile Eswani is a PhD candidate at the Evolutionary Studies Institute at the University of the Witwatersrand, exploring the impacts of the Toba super eruption in Indonesia 74,000 years ago on the paleoenvironments of Southern Africa. Her first paper was published earlier this year in Quaternary International, reconstructing the late Pleistocene paleoenvironment and wood use at Sabudu Cave from the analysis of charcoal. Welcome, Bongi, and it's wonderful to have you on the podcast, particularly as we met many years ago in the lab in the basement of the Evolutionary Studies Institute. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So, Bongi, let's start off by talking about that first paper of yours. And as not all of our audience are paleoscientists, I wonder if you can break down this topic to a general audience of people interested in science. Tell us what you were looking at and why. Of course. So my first paper is one of the many that I have to publish towards my doctorate degree, which is entitled A Qualitative um, Study of Charcoal from Sibudu and Border Caves with the overall aim of reconstructing a pillow environment that is dated to the time of the Toba Super eruption. So my first paper presents the results that I got from analyzing charcoal from Sibudu Cave. So it's just one part of my research. And basically the charcoal data that I had from that cave was dated between 73 and 72,000 years ago. So that is approximately a millennium after the approximate time of the Toba super eruption. What I do in that paper basically is I, I focus on understanding the paleo environment as suggested by the taxonomic identification of the trees that grew around the site at that time. And what I did is I focused on both the taxonomic identification as well as additional paleoenvironmental data, which I could get from the fungal residues that I saw in my charcoal samples. So I looked at the quality of the charcoal samples themselves in order to understand the kind of environment under which the trees grew up in at that time. It's a really, really extensive paper and reading through it, it's incredible how much data you have that's being presented and how that comes together to tell such a clear story. But I imagine that was very challenging, particularly as your first paper, to engage with so much data and to have to bring it down to the word lengths of a standard scientific paper. Yes, yes, it was a little bit of a challenge, but I was up for it. And I was very, very excited by the results that I was not expecting, especially with regards to fungal residues and stuff like that. 
No, it really is amazing. And just to pause to say congratulations. This is a remarkable first paper to have under your belt and no doubt one of many to come, not only from your PhD, but in the many years ahead uh, that you'll spend as a researcher. So very well done on that work. Thank you. Thank you so much. So how did the process of drawing together all of this data into a paper play out? What were the challenges or perhaps the things that you found easier than expected as you embarked on turning it into a paper? So I remember just working on my samples in the lab. The first thing that I noticed while I was looking for a way to actually interpret my results in an additional way to interpret my results apart from the taxonomic part of it. I remember being frustrated with just a lot of samples that were just crumbling when I was like touching them. And then I actually noticed that most of those samples had one thing in common. They had these very strange textures on them. And then I, I chose to focus on those problematic samples. And that's how I got to discovered that they were actually rotten wood. They are residues, like they are charcoal fragments of rotten wood themselves. So that was an interesting process to get into focusing on what made them so fragile, what made them so problematic for me in the lab, and then eventually getting to finding, you know, some very interesting residues found out in residues that told me something about the environment so there was the interesting thing in the lab that actually led me to this discovery that's a really amazing finding and really great that you didn't just give up at the point where everything's literally crumbling in front of you um, yeah <laughs> I think so many people especially with the timeline of a PhD it's so easy to become overwhelmed by that and to think that your PhD is crumbling and falling apart uh, and yet you managed to, to find something incredibly novel there and to include that in the paper. So I think this, it's an amazing story in terms of resilience. So how did that then, when you'd, when you'd made that really, really interesting discovery, how did that then build on to writing up the paper and deciding what focus to place on, on the phenomenon of, of rotting charcoal? Oh, yes. So the way that my first paper was published was a little bit unconventional, I would say, maybe for the first time author, because it was, actually, it was actually published as part of the conference proceedings for a conference that I attended in 2019. So I attended an anthropology conference in Liverpool, and I had the opportunity of being invited to write an article for the conference proceedings afterwards. So what happened is obviously the organizers of the conference approached Quaternary International and created a special issue in there and allowed all the participants of the conference to submit um, an article for publication there. And so my article was published under the special issue, which was titled Charcoal Science in Archaeology and Paleoecology. And the entire process was very, very interesting because I presented my results there at the conference and had a chance to actually interact with many different specialists who deal with charcoal science in the first place. And they had a chance to actually tell me what they thought of my results after my presentation, which was very, very useful. I had many, many productive conversations with many people who are at the top of this field. 
And I benefited a lot just from having those conversations with them. And I was able to incorporate some of the suggestions and some of their opinions that um, they had with regards to my results then. And then when I eventually wrote my article and submitted it for this special issue, I incorporated obviously the advice that I had gotten then. And then just basically made sure that my article was up to international standards because at that time I was aware of what what way everybody is within this fold in terms of you know methodology and the way that they interpret charcoal data and yeah so the conference itself was very very useful in and it played a very significant role if I can put it like that in shaping my very first article I'm grateful for it. It's a phenomenal experience to have gone through in attending an international conference like that and a conference of the scale where people do actually have the time and space to come and have conversations with you. Some of the conferences are so big that you just run around like a headless chicken and you meet hundreds of people, but nobody actually stops for a long conversation. And then as you say that that really fed into the writing process and meant that by the time you submitted the paper, in a sense, it had already been through a degree of review because you'd received feedback and you'd been exposed to the types of methods and the way people were talking about them at the conference. And so you yes. can really hone in rather than just sending it out to the world and, and hoping that that it is of the correct standard, but also that you are speaking the same lingo as, as the people who'd be reviewing it. So I think it's a really good way for people to write their first paper and always very lucky when a, a conference proceeding is in an accredited journal rather than just uh, published independently that you have the benefit of both uh, the accredited journal but also this grounding experience having been through the conference itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is not directly related to academic publishing but I think particularly given the path you followed this is, is important. To what extent have you found that COVID has interrupted conferences? Have you managed to attend any online conferences? And what do you think the experience is there compared to this really wonderful experience that you had at at this particular conference? I think COVID has done the most damage in that regard, like in affecting people, in in actually stopping people from attending conferences. I remember um, I had my eye on a few conferences just before COVID and I was actually like planning on attending at least two, I think for one in 2020 and one this year, 2021. And I ended up not attending them but I still hope to be part of the virtual conference because one of the conferences that I wanted to attend has been converted into like a virtual sort of meeting but that's been that is being conducted over time I'm hoping to submit an abstract soon and present some of some of my results in that conference but I think it has affected a lot of people negatively because I do believe that you need that interpersonal sort of interaction with people it's not the same like virtual conferences are not the same as you know your normal conferences I I do think that it has deprived people a lot especially upcoming researchers like myself I agree completely because as you've described part of the benefit of a conference is seeing how other people present their work and the methods with which they present it and the types of terminology they use but far more important is having these conversations in the corridors, at lunchtime, at the coffee breaks. 
And mm. although there are attempts to bring in social rooms or things like that in international conferences that take place online, it's just not the same. It's very difficult to approach somebody in a purely online format and have the same kinds of authentic conversations that you would following a question and answer that takes place in a, in a closed room and then being able to walk out into the corridors and talk through what you've done and, and what your findings are. So I agree completely that this unfortunately is one of the biggest impacts of COVID. And I think you're quite right that it, it has the biggest impact on early career researchers who really need that space to be able to grow and develop and engage with other people. Yeah, I agree. So perhaps related to that is, is the sense of communities that we have as students and early career researchers. And I'm thinking back to our days down in the microscope lab, but again, I imagine that's very different now under COVID and due to social distancing regulations and lockdown regulations. To what extent have you felt in this PhD that you've had a, a community of fellow students who are walking the same path that you are and, and have you been able to rely on one another for advice and support and enthusiasm? You know what, I've had the privilege of like just retaining the relationships with the people um, who do what I do from before COVID times. And so personally, I would say that I haven't been deprived a lot because I had already established some networks before COVID times. But I, I imagine for someone who's doing their honors or their masters at this time, they not they don't have the same exposure. They don't have the same sort of interaction that we did before COVID times. It certainly hasn't affected me negatively, but I think that the community itself, for example, the community, community of the people who do what you and I do, for example, has been affected in the sense that the new students don't get to have the same um, relationship with other fellow researchers or you know people in the field who are like up there is they don't have that same interaction and they don't have that same relationship due to COVID, specifically due to COVID. I do think that you know the new people are being affected affected negatively. I agree, because a lot of those relationships are built because it's people sitting in the same space at the same time. It's not these very formal relationships, which I think you can replicate. You can have supervision meetings online. You can yeah. share information through reading groups online. But really what you're talking about is that two people happen to sit in the lab at the same time. And every once in a while, you'll mutter a few things or you'll have a little chat or when you take a coffee break, they'll take a coffee break as well. And that that's where you break down these hierarchical barriers between senior researchers and honors students or master's students. And you start to realize that we're, we're all human. We're all trying to do the same thing and that we have a lot yeah. more in common than we don't. And I think you are right that that will be missing for the people who start in this space under COVID and, and don't have the chance to develop these very authentic relationships. Yeah, and I think like most of the problem actually arose with having to regulate the times at which people can be in the lab at the same time, because there was a time when you couldn't have like more than three people in the lab. So we had to like come up with a way of having maybe one or two people at the time in the lab. That in itself actually hindered a lot of relationships from 
from from even happening in the first place, let alone having experienced people interact with student researchers and people who are like just coming into the field so that they can learn from them. It's that whole scenario of, you know, having to use the lab at different times and so not have the freedom to actually interact with people as you would normally. And I imagine the lab time also became much more pressured because you you all had a short window where you were allowed in the lab. And so you couldn't just come in at eight and stay until five if you wanted to. And that also means you're less likely to interact with people because you're so worried about getting your work done as quickly as possible and making the most of that that window of time that you're not going to take the time and just have a short chat or go off and have lunch together. You're really pushing to get as much done as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're you're absolutely right. There's so many impacts of COVID that really disproportionately affect students and early career researchers and that are going to have an impact on their place and their feeling of confidence in the academic space for a lot longer to come than these lockdown regulations persist. Yeah, yeah, I do think that it this I mean the the idea they have of the field itself is going to be shaped a lot by you know their their first experience of the field which was not so warm if you think about it not as warm as at least I had it when I was doing my master's for example so yeah yeah agreed so just circling back to your first paper uh, I want to ask about the review process and how that went and you've already mentioned that you went through a sort of preliminary review by presenting at this conference and getting feedback there but when the actual paper went into Caternary International how was that first review process? I had a lot of constructive feedback from the first draft that I submitted there. And obviously, as I said, I had already sort of like, you know, tidied up some of the things that, that were not very clear to me before the conference with regards to how you should present the results and whatnot. In a, in a scientific paper, but when the feedback came after I submitted the first draft, a lot of the comments I had in there were with regards mostly to the writing style. So both of the reviewers I had could automatically, you know, pick up that I like a, a first time author, I was a first time author. And um, they they explicitly said that they can tell that I'm not experienced in, in you know in scientific writing and that was evidenced in a lot of things that I included the a lot of details that I included for example in my methods section that were not necessary for an article and you know they politely you know told me that okay you don't need to go in so much detail in this section this is the sort of thing that is expected for your thesis but not for your scientific article that's going to be published so i got a lot of comments about that not just in the methods section but also in the discussion there were some things that were not properly communicated in there but it wasn't just criticism that was just thrown there. They had that and then they had suggestions to fix that. I think in my in my opinion, they were very, very constructive and very polite in doing so because they gave me direction to take from you know where I am. And I really, really appreciate it of that. That's wonderfully constructive feedback. And it's so common for people to just say academic writing needs to be addressed and just leave it at that. So 
really wonderful that these reviewers took the time to point out to you sections that they would like to see changed and, and suggestions around how to do that. And I think, as you say, it makes for a very constructive and positive process in being able to recognize, well, yes, this is my first paper. And yes, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, but that by the end of it, you've been guided through this path and you've got to something that is much stronger paper and that fits into the requirements of that particular journal. So really wonderful that there were such enthusiastic reviewers and probably because it was part of a special issue that those reviewers were likely, at least some of them were likely people who'd been to the conference and yes. are really invested in that particular field. So that's a really wonderful first experience. Yeah, I was really, really grateful. Me and my supervisor could actually like guess who one of the reviewers was based on some of the things that they suggested. But like you said, um, it really, really helped that I had that experience in the conference and got exposed to all of these people before I could write something that they are going to read. Absolutely. Your PhD supervisor was, of course, your co-author on the paper. And I have a couple of questions around that, and some I've asked other people on this podcast. But the first question is that you're in quite a, a difficult position in that instead of doing a PhD and then taking a couple of years afterwards to write up papers, you are writing up the papers as your PhD. And so it means that you have a supervisor who has very specific roles that they need to fill as your supervisor in guiding you, but letting you develop your own intellectual property and your own analyses and your own way of writing. And then a co-author who's somebody who co-creates material. And yeah. I've supervised students by publication and it's really challenging to, to sit in both roles and be a co-creator of something, but where it is enough of their work and their voice that it is still their PhD. So perhaps you can talk a bit about that, whether in the process of writing up these papers, the role is very much a supervisory role or whether you feel that you are in a sense sharing the load as co-authors and, and how you've managed to negotiate that space. Well, the way it is with my PhD, because we actually planned for it to be done by publication from the get-go. So we set out specific objectives, specific aims, which I was, I don't want to say solely responsible for coming up with, but I was sort of like in charge of like setting up all the way. So the way it works with me and my supervisor is that I am in charge of the project. So she has a more of a supervisory sort of role in the entire thing. The, the work, I do the work myself. I write the articles myself and she does put, she does, you know, get involved where she needs to. And as far as an, a supervisor is expected to, but it, with regards to like getting involved in like co-creating you know, the, or like contributing in the, in coming up with the results itself, that's sort of like my responsibility. And I understand that. And I actually, I think that, I don't know if most people would prefer to go this route to have their PhD um, done by publication instead of by thesis. But I think it's a, it's a very constructive way of creating a researcher in these times, because this is exactly like, I've, accepted the fact that this is exactly what academia is like. I'm approaching this as my work. I am in charge of like setting up the scope of the work itself, coming up with the results, interpreting the results and like creating different directions to take. 
in improving the results, for example, or like coming up with other ways of exploring this topic that I'm involved in. And I actually prefer it that way than the other way of the th- of having to just be a co-author in an article. I, I feel like this is a more realis- a realistic picture of what academia is like. So if I were like an independent researcher, I, w- I, would, I would actually want to be in charge of everything that I do. And that's exactly what I've gotten out of my project. And yeah, it works for me, basically. It definitely builds tremendous independence in the research process. And I think you're right. It means that when you're finished with your PhD, you'll be able to go out and run an entire research project yourself because many of the things you're describing are not just about the ability to isolate or analyze a particular piece of charcoal it's about being able to project manage that particular area that you're working on and that involves everything from being able to see the project for all of the aims and objectives it will have breaking it down into individual papers deciding what you want to do with your data. And I think it, it does build a, a huge amount of independence. But I think also in, in the space to come, and I certainly found this when I was a postdoc, that it allows you the space to then start to collaborate with people in a way you will always be making very large and meaningful contributions. Because we don't do all of our science on our own, and we increasingly over time have less and less time to do a big project on our own. But I think, as you say, it's easier to go from the perspective of having run a project on your own and taking on a lot of responsibility and knowing that you can do it to then scale down and say, okay, you're doing a huge multi-proxy project and you just want the charcoal from me. I can deliver on that or to then run big projects on your own and certainly easier to scale the one way than to have to learn how to manage a project if you do start off being a small part contributor on a number of other projects. So I definitely agree with you there. Yeah. Uh, Bongi, my next question is about how the skills you've learned in that first paper have helped you in the work you've done since then on the rest of your PhD and the rest of the papers you're working on. What are the things that you're now finding are perhaps shortcuts or things that took you a very long time on the first paper that perhaps are a bit quicker? Or as you mentioned, being able to identify issues with academic writing or with the selection of content to include or exclude to what extent is this creating in a sense a rule book for you on how to proceed so my first article was like an excellent model for many other papers that um, I've had to write since then for example the second one was very much like the first one in the sense that I was presenting results and I was discussing them in the context of other people's results and but focusing on a different site. So the second the second one actually went a little bit more smooth. The publication process for the second one went a little bit more smoother. I basically used the first article as a template in terms of like structuring my results and structuring my arguments and substantiating certain things that I had in the in the second article it definitely went way smoother than the first article I didn't have like major concerns from the reviewers it set off like a, a very good tone for how I could actually write a similar paper in the future the first article did that very very well That's wonderful. And I think something that many of us have found is that we can use our papers as a template. Although 
I don't know if you've experienced the same, but I often find if I go back to one of my earlier papers and I read it, I think, oh, that's so good. Who wrote that? Because we have to remember that what is published is not our first draft and what is published has gone through this rigorous process of peer review and we've had a lot of suggestions on how to improve it. We've had our co-authors or supervisors giving us some feedback on how to improve it and I often find it quite daunting because I think I can never write something that good again. But remembering that a final product and a first draft are two very, very different stages. Yeah, definitely. So Bongi, my last question for you is, uh, as you've mentioned, you're doing your PhD by publication and uh, it's something that I think more and more people are choosing to do, particularly because it then allows you to go into postdoc applications and go out into the world with a publication record behind you. Is there any advice that you would like to give to somebody else who's just starting off on this uh, process, perhaps something that you wish you'd known in the first six months or so of your PhD? My advice would be that you take time to actually sit down and draw up some sort of vision of what you want out of the entire PhD project and have a clear direction on how you're going to build up your thesis. Because like you said earlier, doing a PhD by publication is definitely not the same as doing it by your thesis, because you have to like get a lot of things right the first time around, because it can turn out to be a lot of work, because you're going to be submitting your articles, getting review and having to change a lot of things while you're actually analyzing your data in the lab and organizing a whole lot of other things with regards to your PhD. And so it's always best for one, to have a clear mind map of where you want to go, like draw up achievable aims and objectives that you know for sure you can you can do and get done within a very specific time frame. And then um, do that right like when you're doing your proposal so that you have a clear direction of where you want to go, what you want to include in the different papers. Um, that you want to produce because you don't want to repeat yourself for example if you need to like publish three or four papers you don't want to repeat yourself three or four times in four different articles so your aims and your objectives and everything have to be clearly different from one another they need to have a clear contribution to the wider topic that you're working on and it's always best to like you know consult and you know just sit down and clarify that before you like before you draft your first paper, because that's going to make your life way, 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 way easier. So being organized, you have to be very organized. You have to be very careful with what you want to achieve from your project and how each of the things is actually different from one another. So it's not to like do one and the same thing over and over again throughout your PhD. And then you discover at the end of the day that you don't really have anything significant to say. So yeah, being organized and having a clear direction from the get-go and then working on the objectives and accomplishing them as best as you can. I think that's brilliant advice. And I'm sure for many people who are listening to this who are considering doing their PhDs by publication, that this will really stand them in very good stead. So Bongi, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode. It's been wonderful chatting to you. And I think 
the amount you've learned during this PhD is incredible. And of course, it's not only about charcoal and your discoveries around rotting charcoal and fungi, but it's also about the academic writing process and managing academic projects and being able to take a leadership role in your research. So thank you so much for joining us and good luck for the rest of the PhD. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revise, Rebut and Resubmit. Hopefully it's given you some insight into the process of academic writing and approaching that first academic paper. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to listen to more of this show, please subscribe to this podcast. A huge thanks again to the Center of Excellence for Paleoscience for supporting this work.